Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, COVID, one year on. A year after the first case of the novel coronavirus was diagnosed in the UK and in the middle of a second wave vastly worse than the first, how has the NHS fared during the biggest challenge of its history? Health expert Roy Lilly joins us to explain what's going on. Plus, whatever happened to small business? A double whammy of COVID and Brexit has fallen hardest on independent firms, the ones that used to make up the bedrock of conservative support. As customers' forms pile up, might they look elsewhere for political representation in future? And what's the future looking like for travel in an uncertain world of border closures and new COVID variants? Will holidaymakers and business travellers even want to go abroad? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and extras like our weekend special with Nick Cohen from The Observer talking to Laura Spinney, author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. If you are, you could do us a favour and review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It helps get the podcast to more people and spreads the word. Let's meet the panel for today. Hello to the editor of the LSE's COVID blog. You can follow it at LSE Public Policy on Twitter. It's Roz Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello. What did you make of the EU's swiftly withdrawn threat to erect a vaccine border on the island of Ireland at the weekend? Was it as bad a clangor as it appeared? Well, it was certainly very bad clangor, but I don't think it was much more than a massive screw-up by mm. an official. Uh, essentially, I mean, this is someone in the European Commission whom Ursula von der Leyen has now publicly blamed, incidentally, rather than taking responsibility on herself, who screwed up. And it was very quickly reversed. And considering how difficult this could have got, I thought that it was handled reasonably well. And I don't normally say this, but on the British side in particular, things were not, there was not a lot of angry rhetoric not from the government anyway, of course, there was plenty in the media. But the government was fairly restrained. And this was a problem that was rectified. That said, it exposed very brutally the problem of not having a border on the island of Ireland when one part of that island of Ireland is in the EU and the rest isn't. And all the consequent problems that arise from that. Brexiteers were warned repeatedly that it would create problems with smuggling and border controls. And, uh, over the, uh, and, and this is a prime example of the EU fearing that there would be uh, an attempt to move vaccines from one part of the island of Ireland to the other without their permission. The row, such as it was, was it really between the EU and the UK? Was it between the EU and AstraZeneca? I mean, D David Arden Green, friend of the podcast, wrote, uh, just as the European Commission was wrong in invoking Article 16, though it was probably reversed, it looks as if it was also wrong in how it publicly characterised the contractual obligations of AstraZeneca. Yes, and this is partly a result of the UK being very closely identified with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And of course, that is something with, which the UK government has been very keen to play up. Countries like being responsible for successful vaccines, although it has to be said this isn't quite as efficient as the Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech ones. But nonetheless, it's been a British success story. So what happens when you have that very vaccine nationalism is really the only way to put it, that countries, uh, when, when a country is associated with a particular vaccine, then it starts becoming not a EU versus a company problem, but an EU versus country problem. Do you think there'll be long-term consequences from this or, or uh, you know, because the, the fear is that this is going to be the cudgel that gets waved around forever about how awful the EU is? Yes, in terms of its ammunition for Euroscepticism, potentially, there it does have that. Uh, I'm surprised it hasn't had a greater effect on public opinion. I don't think people are quite caught up with uh, that, that narrative yet. But I think the lasting consequence is an increasing mistrust between the EU and the UK which it has to be said, the Commission has played its part in fostering and in encouraging. And also, of course, it means a lot more work for lawyers. Contracts are going to have to be much more tightly written now. It's going to have to be quite clear whether first come, first served means first come, first served, which is what the UK was saying. You know, we bought these doses, we're entitled to them. You didn't commit to later, so you're not entitled to them till later. There's going to have to be a lot of clarification on that point. Also on today's panel, it's Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? All right. Not bad. Well, as, as Ross said, the vaccine rollout is actually going well in the UK for once. Almost nine million people have been vaccinated. Is it good to acknowledge it when your political opponents get something right? Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge it. Look, you know, we've all got skin in this game and 
we actually do want our government to succeed. Like we all want this vaccine um, to be ruled out. We want um, to try and be successful in terms of managing this virus, which we haven't done a great job on. And I've been very critical, as we all have, of, of the government um, on many things. And you know, this week also marked the the really tragic milestone of a hundred thousand deaths. But it is important, and it's right, and it's fair. If you're in, you know, if you're trying to be sort of objective, which I think you know we all try to do as much as we we can, you do have to say they've done a good job on it. I mean, the the figures just over the weekend were were amazing. You know, sort of, I think we've hit a high of six hundred thousand people getting vaccinated um, in in one day, and it's a. But what is interesting is that. They have, they've strategically done a good job, but one, the other thing they've done correctly was to use the structure of the NHS and to use that healthcare structure of GPs and, um, things like that. And of course, you know, that the army has played a role in it. So yeah, I do, I don't think you lose anything. I think you can still be a critic of the government, but you can still also say on this, they've done a good job. And you've been retweeting the, the Oxford vaccinologist Sandy Douglas, who's, who's been saying the UK actually does have a reasonable claim to saying, you know, it is a UK manufactured vaccine because we actually did fund the development as well as, as the manufacture. I mean, it, though it sticks in the teeth, it, it, is it a little bit of a Brexit benefit? Yeah, I did. I, you're right. I did, I did retweet him. And the reason I thought it was interesting is that the EU used the analogy of, you know, it's not like queuing up at the butchers. And he made the point, well, actually, we help to um, invest to make sure that the butcher shop was actually up and running. And I do think that is important because like investment in um, R&D is really, really important. And that's something that, you know, we should applaud the government for doing. They should you know, they should do that. That's an important thing um, to do. I mean, I don't, it's really difficult. Is this a huge benefit of Brexit? Well, of course, this has gone well. Does this mean that, you know, oh, right, let's all change our view on Brexit? No, but I do think we have to be honest about looking at the politics of this. This has been a gift to Boris Johnson on Brexit. And I absolutely agree with Roz that it's been really interesting watching the government minister's response, which has actually been quite smart, which is not to lay into the, the EU because they don't really have to. You know, when your enemy is is kind of messing it up for themselves, you actually it's actually smart for you to say nothing and take the try and take I don't think they're taking the moral high ground for the sake of taking the moral high ground. I think they're smart enough to work out that actually this looks terrible for the EU and for once does look does look really good for Boris Johnson and Brexit right now. Today's guest is one of those millions of people who's had their shot and he was a major hit when he was on the show uh, during the first lockdown back in May. Uh, welcome back to health policy analyst, writer, broadcaster and commentator, Roy Lilly. Hello, Roy. How are you? Andrew, I'm super good. Thank you. It sounds like the, the uh, vaccine is agreeing with you. Tell us about how you got your jab. How was it? <laughs> it was fantastic. I have to say, you know, I went into this whole thing with with a bundling, oozing with scepticism as I <laughs> normally approach life. But I pitched up at the Excel uh, Conference Centre, uh, which I have spoken at several times. It's like a big tin, a horrible warehouse. It's a nightmare <laughs> to speak at a conference there. You get the clattering, the teacups and the noise of the conferences outside and all this. I hate it. But so I pitched up there, you know, full of scepticism. And a very nice man opened the door and said, good afternoon, sir. Are you here for your your uh, COVID injection? I said, I am. He said, yeah, I, I, just a minute, I'll get some. And a volunteer then took me and put me socially distanced in the queue. And she said, will you be all right there or do you need a seat? So I said, no, I'm fine, thank you. She said, good. She said, I don't think you'll be very long. And the queue sort of shuffled along. Uh, and this, and it, what, what I'd normally seen the XL being, this sort of cacophony of noise and clatter, suddenly is turned into a cathedral of quiet and social distance <laughs> and it's, it's like ethereal and everybody moved along almost in at waltz time and, and these wonderful ushers a bit like if if anybody listening to this went to the the olympic games back in 2000 and whenever it was and they had all these games helpers um uh, ushering the queues and what a wonderful spirit and, and attitude they had they've replicated it absolutely at the excel these fantastic people and some young Young lady said to me, she said, well, you're at the beginning of the end now. And, you know, I thought, <laughs> you're a hug, you know. <laughs> and that you can 
can just see they're all beaming with smiles. I mean, they're all wearing masks, but you can mm. see it in people's eyes and their body language. And anyway, so then I sat down with a very nice lady behind the screen. She said, um, can I see your, and they, you, you know, have to give you a bit of paper with your numbers on all this. She said, oh, yes, Mr. Lily. Right. Let's just have a look. And she'd, oh, yes. She sort of fondled her iPad and she said, oh, <laughs> yes, here you are. That's good, isn't it? I thought, well, yes, it is good. You know, you found me on an, on an NHS database straight away, miles from anywhere. And then um, uh, I went into a little pod where I met a lovely lady who is uh, a member of St. John's Ambulance. She's been with St. John's Ambulance for 40 years. She did my jab. We had a little chat about doing my jab. In fact, she did it and I hadn't realized she'd done it. I felt cheated. I wanted to wince or at least have some stabbing remember memory of it. You know, I had no, I have no memory at all of her doing it. I said, are you sure you've done it? She said, yes, it's all right, dear. You know, I've done it. And, um, and then I walked out and there was a sort of line of ushers seeing me out. And it was almost as, as if they wanted to say, do come and see us again soon. <laughs> the next pandemic, yeah, yes. Exactly. Well, and, and I walked out and I stood and I have to tell you, I had a tear in my dry old cynical eye and I thought, these people are wonderful. It's being run by Bart's, of course, Bart's yeah. uh, Hospital, which is just down the road, uh, by a, a very bright young manager called uh, Jan Flint and uh, who I, I – I subsequently found out who it was. It is excellent. Absolutely excellent. The, the XL excels with excellence. My mum had hers done at the weekend on, on Merseyside and she said uh, that the people, um, everybody went to get their jab and actually put their best clothes on because it's the first day out they'd had in a year. Yes. Well, she said it was I, like going I, to yes. a tea dance. Listen, I must tell you, I know, I've been lounging on my, I mean, I'm built for lounging about you know, on the sofa. I've been a year on the sofa wearing tracky bottoms, you know, because if I'm on the telly or something, I just put a jacket and a shirt on the top and everybody thinks I'm oh, very smart, but I've actually had my tracky bottoms on. Well, I thought as I'm going over to the Excel, I better put some trousers on. So I put some <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, you can guess the rest of the story anyway. So, yeah, I'll probably. So, I've got another notch in my belt. Well, it has now been a year since the first case of coronavirus was diagnosed in the UK. We've had over 3.8 million instances of the virus and, of course, over 100,000 deaths. And it does seem clear that this is the NHS's worst crisis. Is it passing that test? Roy, when you were on the show last year, you said that this was the biggest challenge since the birth of the NHS. We're now a year on into a, a worse phase. Do you, what state is our health service in? You're just saying about how they, you know, for vaccination itself, they're actually being able to, uh, you know, finally come into their own. It, it, how is the NHS performing overall on COVID? Uh, it's on the ragged edge, I think. Uh, to be honest, right now, I mean, the uh, it, there's been loads of coverage. There's been a shift, of course, with NHS England's comms people. Uh, at, at one time, they were trying to keep the press out of hospitals. They, the philosophy was they didn't want people to see how bad it was, I think, and only you know the BBC or the pool went in to, to record uh, under sp- specific circumstances. Now they've pretty much opened up all the ITUs and all the hospitals. You've got regional news teams going in as well, and people can see for themselves the the NHS is on the ragged edge and of course the big worry is now there's this mountain of people this tidal wave of people who have been waiting for elective procedures you know new hips new knees cataracts uh, hernias and of course cancer operations so the the NHS is going to be busy you know from from right to from here to Flagtown I can't imagine you know what it's going to be for the next three or four years so I, I think they they are just about surviving on the ragged edge but it's it's been a huge and gargantuan effort by everybody but we can't overlook the trauma that it takes I mean most people working in ITU are used to people dying but they're not used to people dying on an industrial scale like this is, and it's done a, a, a hell of a lot with their heads and uh, the minds of particularly nurses working in these very difficult circumstances. So, uh, and of course, the it's it's hidden the fact that we went into the COVID. Uh, pandemic with about 40,000 nurses short. The government said that we're just recently we've recruited another 13,000. Yes, but a lot of retired and have left. There's a big workforce problem that COVID is hiding and that's got to be sorted out as well. So uh, it's hanging on by its fingernails, I think. One of the paradoxes of the NHS is that it, it has to show that it's coping in order to you know maintain public support. It has to be seen to work, but also, uh, you know, it, it 
to a degree, you're just mentioning there, uh, news crews being allowed in so that people can get finally an idea of what it's like. People have to understand how serious things are uh, in order to kind of, you know, to maintain that political pressure to, to support it. Do you think, you know, that walking that knife edge of, of, of being, you know, clearly able to deal with the crisis, but also to show how serious the crisis is, is that being walked okay? Do people fully understand what, it, what, what the NHS situation is? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. And let's, let's face it, you know, there are, there are 300,000 nurses working in the NHS. Uh, they all go home and they tell 300,000 husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, families, you know, what it's really like. So, uh, yeah, I think the public do get that. And, and there is a bit of a sort of sophistry going on here about, you know, stay home, save the NHS. Well, the NHS doesn't need saving. The NHS needs to be given the gap and the space so that it can look after people with COVID and look after the, the millions of other people have got a, a shed a lot wrong with that. You know, people are still falling off their bikes and they're still smashing up their cars and they're still, you know, cutting their finger off with a carving knife with a Sunday joint. So there's plenty for the NHS to do. So it's, it's, it's still very, very busy. You, you know, you can see what's going to happen, can't you? You know, Johnson, who's running around, you know, he loves having his picture with his high-vis jacket on and his helmet wherever he goes. You know, he's going to wrap himself in the NHS flag and say the vaccination thing has saved Britain and aren't I clever? You know, everybody's ready for that for the next election. So the NHS uh, is, it, it, well, you can look at, you can compare and contrast what's happening in other countries where you've got federalised uh, health systems, where you've got insurance-based health systems, look how dysfunctional the American system has been. They can, you know, they're still only uh, vaccinating you know, half a dozen people a day. You've got the Germany system has pretty much failed. The French system uh, is in, in a real mess. The Italian system's in a real mess. We have a national health system and it's functioning and it's doing its thing. And, and I think this has really highlighted the value of the NHS. And of course, it will be politically hijacked. You can see it coming. Ross, you you identified this in our, our sort of conversations outside of the outside of the podcast that you know the Nightingale hospitals, for instance, were able to be built really quickly, but the issue was not that there weren't patients, that there weren't enough staff to support their use. How can that be rectified when you know people people see it now and they they see it? It's you know yes, it's an, an absolute national treasure, but it also looks like a terrifying and pressured place in which to work. Yeah, it is. And we can train more people, but it, it is a long-term job to train people. It takes seven years to train a doctor, for example. It takes, you know, most nurses are graduates now. You need time. Now, one of the successes of the vaccination operation has been bringing in a large number of volunteers because there's plenty of people who can help and uh, help out uh, people like Roy today uh, with his vaccination who don't need medical qualifications. They just need to be able to do the meet and greet and the admin. And it's been able to bring in a large number of those people. And that's been a real success because it's given people, some of whom are, you know, furloughed, don't necessarily have a lot to do. It's given them a purpose, something to do, and it's made them feel part of it. And it's been a great way of boosting an inadequate workforce. But when you think about what will actually keep people in their jobs, which is also the important thing now, because there's going to be a lot of people who are absolutely exhausted after what they've been through working in ICU, what is going to be needed to retain them? And if you look at the research, it tends to be not necessarily pay. It's not always pay. It's actually being listened to and being heard and being able to have time off when you need it because you're exhausted and stressed. And I think that is going to be the big challenge for the NHS to ensure that can happen while still trying to keep up, you know, to catch up with the backlog of missed operations that they've got. I think in terms of funding, which we were talking about earlier and how to persuade people now that the NHS should be funded, I think people have been saying recently, oh, you know, this is this vaccine rollout, if it continues to be a success, it's going to be a great boost for Johnson. True, it will be a great boost for Johnson, but it will also be a powerful, powerful argument for paying more taxes for the NHS. And I think if the government is sensible, it will make a point when the inevitable need for tax rises comes, it will point out, we vaccinated you, we vaccinated you as soon as we could. This is a universal benefit that you have. And now it's time to give back. And I very much hope that it won't just be a boost for Johnson. In fact, obviously, I hope it won't be a boost for Johnson. I hope it will be a boost for the case for funding the NHS. 
Aisha, the most recent YouGov poll on which party would be best at handling the NHS was Labour at 35% compared to the Conservatives on 26%. Labour's always been seen as strongest on the NHS. Is it strongest on the NHS now or is it being a little bit too quiet uh, as it attempts to uh, not, as it were, undermine the national effort? Well, you're correct in saying that Labour traditionally has always been more trusted on the NHS and public services, although I think there was um, a, a period recently before the last election when Conservatives slightly overtook um, Labour, which was a, a, a kind of a, a worrying um, signal about what was what was ahead. Um, I think Labour is in quite a difficult position on this. Keir Starmer has set out to try and be a constructive opposition now. I think he in his soul feels that that is the right thing to do. But also one of the things that is absolutely clear from the focus group testings that the Conservatives have done and the Labour Party have done, the public do not want to see uh, politicians having a huge kind of political stushy over this when you know things are so, so bad. Now that feels, that is a very difficult message to sell to lots of people who are really strongly um, upset about what's happening. It's a really difficult message to sell to activists. And of course, it's a very difficult message to sell to your echo chamber on, on Twitter, because of course, people are very, very understandably upset with how things are going in terms of the handling with 100,000 deaths. Um, and they're also now getting angry with Starmer for not kind of been oppositional enough. But one of the things that you will notice in Prime Minister's questions is that Boris Johnson kind of keeps saying, oh, you know, he's the leader of the opposition is not being constructive. He's trying to undermine. Now, he's saying that. I don't think Keir Starmer has at all tried to undermine things. If anything, you know, he has been unbelievably sort of gracious and, and you know, some people think a bit limp on all of this. But they have focus grouped that. So they, they know that that is a message which is testing well with the broader public. And the thing that we and I find this very difficult sometimes, my Twitter timeline is not the public in in general and that is that is very very hard like so many people you know a lot of the circles you know my labor party circles are privately muttering saying you know i just think you know keir starmer's got to be a bit more in the prime minister's face on this he's got to be more aggressive and i've got some sympathy with that but it's also quite a difficult call for him to make because if he does kind of steam in and start having a huge row on this now a lot of people will say hang on i don't want the prime minister to be distracted having a huge row we we need them to focus particularly when the vaccine is the program is going quite well so it it, it should be in many ways at, at the start you know from a strategy point of view for the for the Labour Party you would have thought oh actually this this is this is quite good for them but it's now actually proving to be quite tricky for them yeah I, I agree with that and you know if you look at Johnson he stomps around the country shaking hands with people or bumping with people and when he tells the rest of us to stay at home uh he he's he's his performances at uh, Prime Minister's questions are just rude. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, and I just think, you know, normal people look at it and think, what's he trying to do? But he has tagged Keir Starmer with being a ditherer. Starmer's fed into that by telling his troops to abstain on some key moments. So really, with a public look at this and think, well, who is any good? Who can I trust? Who is going to come out of this? And the public memory is very short. They will certainly remember the success of the vaccine program, but they may well forget the the mess there was over masks, the reluctance to lockdown, the, the the fiasco there's been in schools and to a certain extent what's happening in care homes you know they they will build up on the successes and the and the public will will well, this is far too early i think perhaps is what i'm saying to form any real opinion on who's doing well and who isn't because it's still a confused mess because neither side i don't think have really got a sophisticated line to push i think the weakest point well, not it's not now. The weakest point for Johnson will be when life gets back to normal, whenever that is, and people turn around and say, right, actually, my life, it's not as good as I thought it would be. Yeah, I can go out to the pub, but things are not that great. And the then you'll get 
what I suspect will be a similar thing that happened to Churchill after the Second World War, where people were grateful to Churchill for having uh, won the war, but then they wanted Attlee because they wanted a strong welfare state and they wanted their lives to improve in tangible ways. People are going to have very high expectations after this pandemic. We're all longing for it to finish. And what if real life isn't that great after all? Well, this is not just an issue in the UK. Vaccination is going well here, but it, there are different levels of performance around the world. And one question that's arising is, is the global rush for the vaccine in danger of encroaching on human rights? Israel is a strong vaccination performer, but it has a data for doses deal with Pfizer, where early access to, uh, to the vaccine is exchanged for access to health data. Lawrence O. Gostin is the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law. Here's what he had to say about it. I'm Lawrence Gostin. I'm uh, the founding O'Neill Professor of Global Health Law at Georgetown University, and I direct the World Health Organization Center on National and Global Health Law. Israel uh, is leading the world so far in its uh, vaccine rollout. Like other high-income countries, it's been fairly aggressive in signing pre-purchase agreements with pharmaceutical companies. Israel seems to have um, made a separate agreement with Pfizer to get extra doses of the Pfizer vaccine in exchange for data on vaccine recipients that Israel will then give to Pfizer. It's worrying because there's very little transparency. Israeli citizens and, frankly, the world citizens they want to know what's the data going to be used for in terms of, you know, employment, immigration, law enforcement, a whole range of other things like that. Whether it's the UK, the European Union, the United States or Canada or Israel, they're buying up doses in secret advance deals with pharmaceutical companies. There's some real ethical problems I have with that. Um, because it means that we've starved low and middle income countries of vaccine doses. And as a result, we're, we're going to have, as Emmanuel Macron of France said, a two-speed world. Um, it's very possible to see Israel, the UK, the US getting to herd immunity within six months. And it could take six years for some of the lowest income countries. The God's honest truth is, is that high-income countries have been quite greedy, quite selfish, and that's just not right. And as Martin Luther King said in the United States, all inequities are unjust, but the most unconscionable inequity are health inequalities. And that's what we're seeing highlighted during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is not just an ethical imperative. You know, sharing vaccines is not just the ethically right thing to do. It's actually in all of our self-interest. The Israeli case is a very clear one. You know, if you've got a population that's constantly going across borders, there's no way you're going to save and protect your population unless everyone's protected. It's in Israel's interests, and it is ethical, and it is the right thing to do to ensure that Palestinians are vaccinated. We also need to be sure that we do that for all populations around the world. Everyone has equal worth. Everyone has the same you know, aspirations for health and safety and security and prosperity. And there's no reason morally or economically or politically why some should have so much protection and some should have so little. Now, COVID and Brexit have been terrible for all small businesses with only two exceptions, takeaways and podcasting. We've absolutely booming here. But lockdowns, customs chaos and reduced demand have disproportionately fallen on independent firms, the ones that used to be the bedrock of Conservative support. So are these voters going to be up for grabs at the next election? And what should Labour try to do to win them round from Boris Fuck business, Johnson. Ros, we're seeing daily stories on the theme of, you know, I voted Brexit and now my export business has collapsed. I feel betrayed. Have those businesses just been filed in the memory hole by the government now that they've uh, they've served their purposes and delivered their vote? Yeah, essentially they have. I mean, they the idea of Brexit was sold to these people on a promise of less red tape. 
the reality, of course, was a lot more red tape because you were now trading outside the single market. But that was the promise. And uh, the small businesses tend understandably to think that they'd be better off with less uh, administration and red uh, tape. And the Leave campaign played on those fears. So we can at least say, I told you so, when it's a former Brexit MP like uh, Lance Foreman who's wanting a bailout for his smoked salmon business. But it's it's very hard to, to have anything other than great sympathy for people who thought they were voting for one thing and very much got another. But this is the bedrock of conservatism. So something like 95% of UK firms are, sm- are SMEs, 45% of total uh, business revenue in the country, 60% of, of private sector investment. Is it possible to run a Conservative Party when you've basically junked a huge chunk of British business? Yeah, let's not say I told you so, because it's r- really not helpful at this stage. People believed what they were told and what the government assured them, that it would all be okay. And that wasn't unreasonable. It was a perfectly natural thing to do for people who don't have a lot of spare bandwidth to think about politics. The trouble is that these businesses never even had the CBI to make the case for them because they were all individual ones. Their export circumstances were often very different. They didn't have a big lobby group standing up for them. And at the time that they normally have been able to make a fuss about how bad it was going to be, i.e. 2020, and crucially to be heard by the media, everybody was consumed, including the businesses themselves, by COVID. It was COVID, COVID, COVID with no space for anything else and no room for anything else. And and for many businesses, it was a basic struggle to survive. And it still is. I mean, one in seven SMEs is now at risk of going under because of COVID. So in a sense, Brexit has been a second order issue. And for some of them, it's now become very much a first order issue. But you can't blame them for having to contend with a lack of interest from the media and failing to, and, and, and which which wasn't listening to them last year. I mean, this, we, we've seen consistent dismissal of the issues with with uh, red tape on import exports as teething problems, both by the government and by its its uh, more explicit outriders. And the communications before the deal, such as it has came through, were almost non-existent. They were just messages to prepare. Uh, whatever that means, even though these businesses did not know what they were preparing for. Is there a tipping point where the government has to has to act in favour of these small businesses? Or is that is that old thinking? Is that old sort of, you know, pre-Johnson, pre, pre-COVID thinking on my part? Well, somebody's got to have a plan, haven't they? They've got, they, when mm. we come out of this, the high street's going to be ruined. Um, we've seen more shops being uh, marooned and left to, today with a deal on Topshop and all the rest of it. You know, thousands of people without of a job. It's not just that, it's the supply chain for the shops as well and the people who clean the windows and do the cleaning. So, the, I mean, the high street's been destroyed. A lot of small businesses won't exist anymore. Simply, I mean, like the bloke who makes the still and cheese can't export it anymore because he's he's got to pay 180 quid for every small packet he sends for a vet to say it's whatever it is so i mean there's a lot of bonkers stuff still to come out so somebody's got to have a marshall style plan haven't they this is these are the we're going to build back better okay we've got the phrase what does it mean what 10 things is one single political party going to do what's keir starmer going to do what 10 things is he going to do to build back business what are the 10 things that johnson's going to do to build back business neither of them I've got a clue. Aisha, do you think it's possible for, for Labour to bring small business around? I mean, it worked, uh, worked for the Blair government when they managed to project competency on the economy as well as, uh, as, well as change, as it were. Is it, is it possible? Can Labour get there? Well, it's going to be very difficult because um, Labour hasn't been trusted on the economy for a, a very long time. And that's not just Jeremy Corbyn. That goes back to when I worked for Ed Miliband and, of course, the global financial crisis, which was absolutely not the Labour Party's fault, but that was the frame which the Conservative Party used against the Labour Party very successfully, even though the Conservative Party backed all the um, you know financial decisions that had been made by Gordon Brown. You know, why would you give the keys back to the guys that crashed the car was a sort of ruthlessly uh, devastating attack line. And you have to go back in a bit of political history. I mean, the the thing that always stymied the Labour Party and not trusted on the economy, and that's the thing that that uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair worked so hard on, you know, right through the the nineties to, um, you know, establish uh, prudence and and all of that kind of stuff. Now, what 
Gordon Brown had to do and Tony Blair had to do in the run up to 1997 was show the public that they would be prudent with the public purse while investing in things that needed um, investment like the NHS, like education. So this is the this is the balance that Keir Starmer will will find himself in. You know, he will have to convey, look, we will borrow to invest in things which will help build back better as Roy said, but they do have to be mindful. Like, I know we have just had a, a spend-a-thon, but the, the public are still very socially conservative from a fiscal point of view when elections come around. Now, there, I hope that this pandemic will make people think much more about paying a bit more tax, as Ross said, to support the things that have you know been important to them. I think Labour does have an opportunity with this, but they also have this historic problem on the economy but i one of the things i do i am disappointed from labor though in, in this period of time i don't think people want to see huge politicization of the covid crisis as we've discussed but i do think they should be saying more about the problems that business are facing now i think they're quite quiet on the business front they they scored a good win from the government last week where they forced the government to u turn on their plans to look at workers rights um which been but they should be doing more, you know, in, and, I, and this isn't about un, relitigating Brexit, but this is an opportunity for the Labour Party to be out there pressing the flesh with business, even if it's on Zoom calls, but saying that we are going to stand up for you. Tell us what you need to, to make things easier, because you're right. The great irony about where things were is that Labour was always associated with red tape. But conservatives are now strangling businesses with with red tape every which way. So I think there is an opportunity there. But Labour have got to be much more like, you know, on the pitch on this. Meanwhile, if there isn't enough crisis to go around, there's one in Italy for you. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte resigned last week. Why? Well, we spoke to author and former Guardian journalist Tobias Jones in Parma to tell us. Hi, I'm Tobias Jones. I'm a writer and journalist based in Parma and the author of Ultra. Why has Giuseppe Conte resigned? A very much minority partner in his government pulled support. So Matteo Renzi, who's the leader of the Italy Alive party that's polling at about 3%, decided that he would no longer support the government. He's previously pulled this trick. He pulled the plug on his own centre-left government so that he himself could become prime minister. Because Conte had this wafer-thin majority, even a minority partner could cause the government to collapse. So although Conte won a confidence vote last week, he resigned at the beginning of this week basically because he knew that any government was unworkable unless there was a major sort of realignment of political parties. Covid is sort of relevant and not relevant. Conte's handling of the crisis has been fairly well received. The reason it's relevant is because 209 billion euros from the EU's recovery plan is about to drop into the Italian coffers. Renzi and other politicians are desperate to be holding the levers of power when that huge sum of money is distributed in all sorts of different directions. So it's really a question of power and patronage rather than any ideological difference. The public think that Renzi is purely doing this for his own ends. He is an incredibly greedy man. You know, just as this crisis broke, a video emerged of him being paid €80,000 to go to Saudi Arabia. But there are lots of other players in this on the right. You have Giorgia Meloni, who is the young blonde leader of the fascist party, Matteo Salvini's league. And still you have Silvio Berlusconi, the government is so fragile, a lot of people are wondering whether Berlusconi will be the kingmaker in all this, whether he will peel off from that centre-right coalition and actually decide to support Conte. 
the feeling is that a lot of the parties in opposition would almost rather stay in opposition for another year or two and let this current government take all the flack for all the unpopular things it's going to do, the lockdowns and the restrictions and the dreadful state of the economy. I suspect what is going to happen is there will be a new majority cobbled together with possibly Renzi eating humble pie and coming back into the tent, possibly Berlusconi, or possibly sort of disgruntled people from both those minority parties propping up the government, and it'll sort of stumble on for another year or two. Then we'll have a a proper general election. Finally, have you booked your holiday yet? Me neither. Coronavirus has torn up our relationship with travel. Border closures, quarantine periods and a multitude of closures mean trips away are off for most of us. So will our relationship with going abroad for business and pleasure ever recover? Bookings for domestic holidays are reported to be surging at 200 to 300% of the usual volume. Aisha, at what point do you think you're going to go away again? Are you banking on anything this year? (laughs) Never. I don't think I'm ever going on holiday again. I'm never leaving that, but I'm quite relieved because I'm never going to be bikini ready ever again in my entire life. But if I get anywhere near the sea, I'm going to get harpooned the way things are right now. <laughs> so I have, I feel like the pressure's off a bit. But I, I have to say, well, I was never one for going on like super big hot sort of holidays. So I'm Glaswegian and I really don't like the sun. I can't mm. handle like being in the sun. But I am a bit, I don't feel the desire. I do think, you know, there's everything for me has slightly changed after this I don't really want to get on a plane and be jammed up with lots of um, other people but I want to go to Scotland I think the staycation for me is definitely going to loom large in my life Michael O'Leary of Ryanair uh, he thinks that once travel restrictions uh, are, are dropped there will be a huge explosion of pent-up demand apparently EasyJet's bookings for the summer are up 250% which to me is well that's the definition of, of optimism do you think that sort of that those cheap impulse holidays are going to be something that's not going to come back it's difficult to see because some people are so desperate to 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 get away but i do think a lot of other people are, are worried about it i also do think it's a bit irresponsible from the government to be sending out like so much mixed messaging on the summer like you know we we had the home secretary saying look i don't think it would be you know, wise to be sort of going away or booking your summer holidays. And certainly Dominic Raab kind of hinted that. And then you've got Matt Hancock saying, I think we're all going to have a brilliant summer. And one of the problems is we all had a brilliant summer last year and we're all paid quite a heavy price for it. I think it's quite irresponsible. I think we have to send a message out. We will get through this, but we're not going to be snapping back to business as usual by the summer. And I think that is responsible messaging. I think we have to tell people we are actually going to be living a bit of a restricted life for a bit longer and just be honest with people this idea that we're all going to be yomping about on holiday i think it's just really irresponsible ross the backbone of of the aviation industry has been the has been business travel the business class and and, and high affair and obviously zoom has put paid to that for a lot of people do you think that's a permanent thing no, it's not a permanent thing. I think here the emphasis on what people actually do in business meetings will change. By the way, I mean, let's all, you know, take a moment to think about those people with thousands of thousands of air miles who just now cannot well, use them. I mean, pray for them. Yeah. Yes. Um, but um, no, I, I think what matters, if you ask business people what really matters and what they will continue to travel for, it tends to be for meetings that involve a degree of trust. So basically, that's if you're going to spend some money, if you're doing a deal, if you're going to be starting a new business relationship with somebody. On the other hand, the stuff that was going to conferences and listening to presentations, which is what a lot of academics who I work with, for example, do, is more or less going to move online. There are some things that can be replicated on Zoom and there are some things that definitely can't. And I think you'll begin to see that difference. And also you'll begin to see a winnowing out of business travel anyway, I think, because Britain is going to become a less globalised place for a while. That is inevitable. All Most countries are moving towards doing more and, uh, and 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 not consuming so many products from abroad, even Joe Biden's America is. And naturally, if you're less globalised, then you have less business travel. Yeah. And, you know, I always found it, you know, friends who are off, off on a business trip, I was amazed at how little seems to get done from these things, how symbolic they are. They're sort of part of a business ritual rather than actually, you know, getting 
things done. And what you were saying there about trust, it's like it's like the deal closing one is the one that needs to happen, but everything else can it doesn't actually require physical presence in the same way. Exactly. Right. I mean, health and vaccines and security of transmission of infection and so forth are huge determinants of this. From a health point of view, do you think it's it's likely that that uh, you know leisure travel is likely to open up soon? Well, I think people are going to be cagey, and of course, we don't really know uh, what the real benefit of a vaccination, even you know, two shots, is going to be. We, we, the scientists still don't seem to be sure whether or not it will stop me transmitting the disease. It doesn't tell me whether or not I'm going to not get it, or well, I just won't get it quite so severely. So, you know, all of us really that have had this vaccination are still part of a huge clinical trial, which is why some of these companies want the data because they want to know what the long-term assurance and guarantee is and how long the vaccination will last for. So I think until we've answered those questions, people will still be very sceptical about travel. I think O'Leary, you know, in Ryanair, he's right. There'll be a lot of people who will just head for the beach because everybody wants to be thoroughly fed up with it in the same way that a lot of people have been heading for the beach here, lockdown or no lockdown. You know, there'll still be a whole group of people that will say to hell with it, let's go and have a decent time so but i think you know more sensibly we need to know more about what the vaccine will give us before we can determine what life will be like in six months time you're desperate to get away yourself if you got to get your eye anywhere all you'll be given another year there's a little place in sicily that i'm not going to tell you where it is but it's waiting for me and the bourguignon is floating across the pool and the dry white wine is on ice so we've come to the end of the podcast which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics the books films tv show music whatever that they're using to ward off the outside world ros what is warding off the outside world for you at the moment i'm learning an awful lot about the ancient egyptians andrew Oh, I'm really? now an expert on the ancient Egyptians. Yeah, come on, Ross, talk like an Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> that was really Alan Partridge, that wasn't it? Really, Alan Partridge. Yeah, I, I no. I mean, obviously, that's homeschooling, uh, and so that is not an escape route. That is merely a duty. Yeah. I have been watching a lot of Junior Bake Off. Uh, that is also <laughs> that is also partly a duty. What I'm really looking forward to is uh, the latest, uh, the last season of Spiral on Grenage, which mm. I am saving up as a special treat for myself every Friday night for an hour. Mm. Aisha, how about you? Well, I'm sure lots of people have been watching this, but I have, I just, it's it's the sin. It's just been an absolute modern masterpiece. I've watched Mm. it, I've started watching it again, just so brilliantly done. And the ability to, to make you kind of laugh and and then just make you howl and also the education from it. And the only thing that is, I mean, so much of it, which is hard to watch, but the scenes of the parties and the bars and the dancing is quite torturous right now, though, because it does make you want to go out and sort of get stuck in. But I just think it is, I, I genuinely think it's the most brilliant bit of television that I have seen in years. Yeah, and it, the, the, the way it's landed now, it's it's come out just at a time when a population that might have seen the kind of the absolute necessity of going out a lot and being with people like yourself as not necessarily something that was important to them. Now we all know, everyone knows how important just human contact yeah. is being out and about meeting people. And it, it it's like, it couldn't have come out at a more appropriate opposite time. Could it? Yeah. The, the timing is, is, is extraordinary. And also the fact that it, you know, the, you know, the contrast in terms of that was a, you know, this huge health crisis, but it was dealt with in such a different way to how this health crisis is in being dealt with. And also, you know, I was growing up at the time, I was obviously aware of it, but none of us knew those, those hidden stories, those stories of, of loss. And, you know, it, it's just a modern bit of history, really recent history, which was so covered up. And, you know, it's just been fascinating to see it all kind of laid bare. And the stories that are coming out, I interviewed a woman on my show on Sunday who worked um, on a gay switchboard at the time. It was like a helpline. And she was fascinating because she was saying that she worked on this helpline from the 80s into the 90s. 
and the calls that they would just get from people as this, you know, um, virus and disease was becoming, um, you know, prevalent. The heartbreaking stories, of course, which, you know, this, this series now has shone a light on. But also parents ringing up really confused because there was so little information and so little honest, compassionate information given out at the time. Parents just really unsure about what to do. And it's just brilliant, brilliantly done. But just more than anything, just education, like drama and education at its best. How about you, Roy? What's uh, giving you a mind break from reality at the moment? Well, actually, funnily enough, I've kept in touch with a lot of my mates on Zoom. We have a, like a, 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 a night and we just sit and chat and have a drink on Zoom. So, and I've actually seen more of some people than I would have done, you know, if I'd got to travel or meet them in a bar or what have you. So I've done that. And the other thing is I've gone back to painting. I paint in watercolour. Uh, I've, I've, I'm doing a lot more painting and I'm, you know, really pleased to do it. And I think I've got better at it because it's like all the things you know the more you do the better you get so i've really i've really enjoyed that um but i but the, i have one thing i really have missed and i can't replicate and that's going to visit the front line in uh, in hospitals and in primary care and getting out into the health service because that's where i find inspiration from and, and the you know people doing the important jobs are but fundamentally uh, I, I mean i've been super lucky in lockdown really and uh, i've got a lot to be thankful for thankful for well, mine is uh, Pretend It's a City on Netflix with Fran Leibovitz, Martin Scorsese's Walk and Talk with the unique and uh, fantastic uh, art critic and humorist Fran Leibovitz. And it's all about, it's just, it's Fran and her opinions. Fran is just an opinionator. The first couple of episodes center very much on life in New York and how annoyed she is with incomers and how annoyed she is with people who don't know how to walk down a street and how annoyed she is with people who look at their phone the whole time. Hence the title. Why don't you just pretend it's a city where you have to fit around? around other people it's both fantastically funny and fantastically evocative of new york but also really nostalgic for being in cities full of busy people i live in a city i'm surrounded by people and i never see any of them because i'm in this back room talking on podcasts we've all been separated from one another and and to see this this thing which is both about new york and it's about new yorkers obsession with new york because obviously new yorkers can't shut about how great new york is and nowhere else in the world matters but it's 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 nostalgic for so it feels like a period piece and it's brilliant and it's really funny and it's on netflix now and that is the end of this week's bunker. So thanks to our special guest, Roy Lilly. Thanks for coming in. It's a great pleasure and good luck to everybody and keep safe. Welcome back soon. And thanks to Aisha Hazarika. Oh, thank you so much as ever. And thanks to Ross Taylor for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you enjoyed the podcast, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. See our Twitter or Facebook, or just search Patreon Bunker Podcast for early shows, merchandise, and all kinds of other stuff, and some interesting news coming in the next few weeks. Backers, of course, get an honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. Well, hello, and a big thanks from me to Fiona McFarlane, Alex Soden, David Thomas, and Alex Cornish. Thanks from me to Ed Baker, Ian, Carl Axel Ackerson, and John Wood. And finally, hello, and best wishes from me to Keith Kelly, Rachel Brooks, Laurie Mansfield, and Stephen Evans. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Ross Taylor, and Aisha Hazarika. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.